21. Uh, I'm also getting a little bit of a, a feedback here. I don't know if it's possible to adjust uh, the mic, but um, if you could maybe mute all the other mics in the building and, and just leave this one on, might help. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm hearing something. Anyway, um, I want to try to connect the events of the last week in Jesus's ministry uh, here recorded in Matthew 21 and try to connect those with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Please don't try to think I'm stretching something too much. I'm acknowledging what's already in the text and trying to build on what I'm, I've already started. Let me just set the scene here in Matthew 21. The events that led up to Jesus's uh, entrance into Jerusalem on that occasion was that it was preceded by Jesus's attempts to try to help explain to his disciples, it's not going to be the way you think it would be if I am indeed the Messiah. He said in chapter 20, I don't have time to read all this, but in chapter 20, he says to his disciples for the third time, not the first, second, it's the third time he explains to them that he is going to enter Jerusalem and he is going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He's actually going to be crucified and then rise from the dead. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is he knows exactly what's about to take place. And as chapter 20 records, they make their way through Jericho, which is coming down from the north. They're, they're coming through Jericho, and then they're going to come into Jerusalem. And he and his 12 disciples are there. And Matthew makes it very clear in his recording of these events that Jesus is not caught off guard by what happens on this occasion. Clearly, Jesus is saying he's in control of this situation. And in 21, he, he directs his disciples to bring to him a mare donkey, a mother donkey, and to bring her colt for Jesus to borrow. Now, Matthew later reflected upon this event of Jesus actually sitting upon uh, a very young donkey that probably had never been ridden upon before. And he concludes that Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem was not just a strange event. It was a messianic fulfillment of prophecy taken from the book of Zechariah. And you can look it up yourself in chapter 9. And he says 400 years earlier, Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would indeed come gentle riding on a donkey. Notice in verse 5 what Matthew says about this entrance. In chapter 21, verse 5, Matthew highlights the fact that in choosing to enter this way into Jerusalem, in a very odd and strange way, for someone to come in and have accolades given to them riding on a young donkey was quite odd. And what's even more odd and strange is that it is the king of Israel. Here is a person who is acknowledging that he is the king of Israel. He is presenting himself to the people of Jerusalem in a way that was quite strange and unusual. He came as one who was gentle, or some translations render it meek. Jesus did not enter the way that most Israelites would have expected someone with messianic authority, someone who had royal standing. He, you would expect them to come in on a very impressive stallion, some sort of horse and some sort of bold statement say, I am here, I have authority, I'm going to take charge, I'm here to put, put things in their place. Jesus rode upon a young donkey, a beast of burden. As one who was authorized, we read elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus was authorized and had available to him 12 legions of angels that he could call upon 
to take the city by force. He could have called out that big band of, this, of angels and he could have meted out justice from all the inhabitants. He could have let them have it. But what did he do? Instead, he entered gently, not armed for battle, but humbly in an unimpressive way. So I want to focus my thoughts this morning on this term found in verse 5, Matthew 21, verse 5, the word gentle, also translated meek. The word in the original language is the same word that Paul used in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. As he mentions that when the gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit to the heart of his people, this is one of those character traits that is seen in the people of God. And I would say again, we see clearly here another example of that the Holy Spirit produced fruit in the, in the lives of the people of God is one and the same as Christ-likeness. And one of the memorable aspects of Jesus' final ministry was his gentleness. As he displayed as one who had all power, he had all authority to destroy everyone who opposed him, he did not. Instead, he came with one who was quite gentle. And so my goal this morning is to try to answer the question, what do we mean by gentleness, by giving a definition of that word from a biblical point of view. And then I'd like to look at some memorable examples or illustrations of biblical gentleness that we find in the pages of Scripture. And then lastly, how does the gospel give and provide incentives for those of us who are followers of Jesus to grow in this area of gentleness uh, in our day-to-day life? So first of all, what is the definition of biblical gentleness? Well, again, if you study the word, uh, it has a number of different nuances and meanings depending on how it's found in the context. But in Jerry Bridges' book, he writes a book called The Fruitful Life. I commend it to you, quite helpful in dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. He suggests that there is a subtle difference between meekness and gentleness. I hadn't read any other author that makes this distinction, but he, he claims that Meekness, he would say, is more of a passive trait. Meekness would involve someone who is responding to someone in a reserved fashion who is perhaps mistreating you. And so gentleness, he would argue, is an active trait. It has to do with mildness in dealing with other people. It has to do with, uh, uh, as a gentle person, you would sort of develop a sensitivity to people around you and regarding them from that point of view. Rather than being harsh or demeaning to those around you, a a gentle person would speak and act toward others almost as if they are functioning as a shock absorber, trying to shield what really ought to be given to that person in terms of giving them what they really deserve, and they try to hold back on some level as a shock absorber, cushioning their words of correction or cushioning the way they deal with things, people when they mess up or when they have difficulties. This idea of gentleness is something I thought about uh, as I reflected on what occurred in last January, a year ago. Um, Joyce and I and the rest of my family gathered at my uh, mother's home, and we gathered in order to determine uh, what was going to happen to the remaining furniture that my mother could not use as she moved into a two-bedroom apartment. One of the items that uh, she could not use and that no one else in the family was interested in using was a rather impressive grandfather clock uh, that's about nine feet tall. And uh, it belonged to my great 
great-grandfather. And uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful clock. And, and our approach in trying to move this clock was that we're not professional movers. So we did our best to treat it gently. And so we removed all the inner workings of the clock. We removed the weights that, uh, that are used in that mechanism. We, we wrapped the clock with blankets. And then we proceeded to uh, lay it down on its side on a mattress. And then we uh, used they call saran wrap. I don't know if you've seen these big rolls of saran wrap. You just wrap things around it and uh, try to cover all the corners, making sure it did not get damaged in any way. We laid it on top of things in the truck and tied it in such a way that we tried to make sure uh, it was very carefully handled. We didn't put any heavy boxes on there, and we didn't say, oh, it's a hard time going in, just jam it into the corner. That's not the way we dealt with the clock. In keeping with its value, we tried to handle it as carefully as possible. Some of the guys here at church helped me carry it from the truck and down into our basement where it is now because it's nine feet tall. It won't even stand in a normal uh, eight-foot ceiling room. Well, when you think about gentleness in terms of a character trait, we're talking about the idea of a person whose heart the Holy Spirit has made tender in the sense that they have become sensitive to the rights and the feelings of other people around them and that there's a graciousness that they've developed about them and that gentleness involves treating people, we could say, considerately. Interestingly enough, in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul urges the members of the church there in Philippi, he, he, he exhorts them and says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. It's something that is helpful in, in the dynamics of those around us. He's not asking in that situation for people to be cowardly. He's not asking for people to be timid or weak, which oftentimes people think of meek people, as being weak people, that's not the case at all. Um, it refers to a person who's strong, but they're under control. And having a mildness of disposition. It's the opposite of someone who has self-assertiveness, who's interested only in their self-rights and self-pursuits. Uh, and here's a helpful little quote by Jay Adams. He's a, a biblical counselor who's not long for this world, I don't think. Uh, he's quite aged now, but uh, really the... Uh, the, the, one of the leading forces of the biblical counseling movement in today's world. He says this, when it comes to uh, being gentle, gentle people are kind in heart and action. They make it their purpose to do nothing that harms or offends. The meek or gentle are willing to let others have what they might otherwise attain for themselves through toughness or roughness. They forego in order to help rather than harm. So I would think of, here's an example for, you know, if you're in traffic and you're stuck and you can't go anywhere, traffic is not moving very quickly at all, and if you've ever been in those situations, which is quite common, unfortunately, you're stuck in your lane, and what do people do? They drive in the breakdown lane, right? Everyone else is sitting there waiting their turn to make it past whatever uh, accident or whatever uh, cones are in the road, narrowing the road, but people go in the breakdown lane, and what do they do? Then they want to merge in front of you, which you've been waiting there for a long time, and they just recently arrived. So what do you do? Do you keep your bumper all the way up within about a half inch from the one in front of you and not ever let that person in there at all? And yet they're inching their way in, and so there's going to be an accident for sure if somebody doesn't yield. A gentle response does what? A gentle response allows room for someone to enter even if they're doing what they shouldn't be doing. Trying not to use your power over them in order to extract your own way 
but doing it in a way that allows those around them uh, to understand there is some restraint on your part. Rather than elbowing your way to the front of the line, demanding one's rights, a gentle person will display deference to the person around them and the concerns that might affect other people as well. So it's a pretty high standard. It's a pretty challenging thing to have in one's life. But I want us to think for a moment now, secondly, about the illustrations of gentleness as we see them in the pages of Scripture. These illustrations are, I think, intended, first of all, to try to speak to the issue that many people, when you say, oh, I'm challenging us to think about being gentle, and and some men will say, oh, come on. Is this the feminization of the gospel to try to, you know, they think of it as a feminine trait. Well, let me just show you just uh, very interestingly enough, that's really a false way of thinking because it is manly to be gentle. They are not polar opposites. To be gentle and manly are not uh, opposites at all. Look in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40, page 860 in your pew Bible. Isaiah gives a description about God. And in his description about God in this passage, he reminds the people of God that God is not weak. God is not wimpy. God is not one who is uh, exhausted in his resources to do whatever he wants to do. Uh, the people of God have this has been written to them to help them in the times when they have been overwhelmed by uh, enemy nations and they've been destroyed. This is a word to remind them there's hope for them and again. And so he says in verse 15, Isaiah 40, 15, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. God weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. He's saying God is powerful and God is mighty. God is great, far greater than any human's he transcends uh, all of these people in ways that make them seem very small. Verse 26 of Isaiah 40, God is described as having great power, mighty strength as the creator of billions of stars in the sky. So here's God as strong and mighty and sovereign and great over all things. And then he says this, back up to verse 11 of chapter 40. Isaiah wants the people of Israel to never forget that the true and living God who created all the heavenly bodies in the universe, is also tenderly concerned for his people. Verse 11. God tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Fascinating. He says, on the one hand, God possesses sovereign power, as the supreme one over all, he can do whatever he pleases. But God also lowers himself to consider the needs, to consider the concerns of those who are vulnerable, those who are needy. And what a beautiful comparison. He says, Almighty God is like a caring shepherd, stooping down, trying to pick up a burdened, weary, overwhelmed mother sheep. What amazing gentleness that the God whose power upholds all things would be tenderly and sensitively involved with people like us. People who wander away from him, people who are desperately need his help, people who are weak and often fail. Interesting how Jesus also is highlighted as one who is gentle in the pages of Scripture. And the more I've been thinking about it, Jesus made a strong effort to distance himself from those who did not give that sense of gentleness, the opposite would be the Pharisees. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, if you turn in your pew Bible to page 1155. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were known to be those who placed unrealistic expectations on their disciples. They laid heavy burdens upon their followers. They had a long, 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 long list of rules. And they expected everybody to follow all of those rules, which they came up with, which were far more extensive than whatever scripture from the Old Testament would have given. And these rigid rules demanded that everybody must follow them. And if they didn't, that they were going to therefore be part of the system of having to to bring all these sacrifices. And therefore, uh, they were gaining money from all this exchange of money within the temple complex. And they were basically, as Pharisees, they were enriching themselves on the backs of the weak, the vulnerable, and the poor. So Jesus contrasts himself with these people because they could never satisfy all these long lists of keeping rules. People were getting worn out with the Pharisees. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Weary of what? Weary of trying to meet up to the standards, which cannot ever be met. And I will give you rest, Jesus said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. To take a yoke upon someone would mean submit to me, my disciple. Follow me as I lead you. And be my disciple and follower. He says, I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls us to submit to his yoke. That is, we're to yield to his authority as Lord and Master. And everyone who surrenders to him, Jesus assures them that he will never deal with them and crush them with insults or demeaning put-downs. He will never use his position of power to exasperate his disciples. But he says in Matthew 12, verse 20, if you just turn the page from Matthew 11, actually it's on the same page of the Pew Bible, Matthew 12, 20, we read that Jesus is a bruised reed. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. I want to quote a helpful comment here by John MacArthur who tries to summarize what this verse is teaching us. He says a reed was used by shepherds and they would take these little reeds and they would fashion them into a little flute and they would use them as a musical instrument and after a while you use it, it's not very strong, it would eventually wear out, it would crack, it would eventually become worn and it becomes useless. And then he says a smoldering wick which is at the end of its usefulness, not allowing much light to be given off, are people that are compared to people who are deemed by the world to be useless people. And Jesus says his work there was to restore and rekindle people, not to break them. And it speaks of Jesus' tender compassion toward the lowliest of the lost. And therefore he came not to gather the strong for a revolution, MacArthur says, but to show mercy to the weak. Mercy to the weak. So Jesus presents himself as a gentle master who calls his disciples to follow him and fully surrender. Well, the gospel call to surrender is done in such a way that Jesus Christ enables those of us who are weak, who are not able to keep the law, those of us who do fail 
and who find ourselves falling short. Jesus comes to us in the gospel and says, I have kept the law for you. I lived a perfect life in which I kept all the standards found in the word of God. And he says, and then in order to placate the wrath of God that each one of us deserves for breaking the laws of God, he died on the, on, in our place on the cross. Rather than condemning us as lawbreakers, Jesus humbles himself to assume our place. He served as our substitute on the cross so that everyone who repents, everyone who believes and trusts upon him alone, we might enjoy the privileged status of being fully forgiven, adopted, and loved as children of God. The gospel meets us by pointing us to gentleness given to us and expressed to us through Jesus Christ. I've thought of a number of other examples of Jesus' gentleness in his final week of ministry. When you think about what happened between the time in which he entered Jerusalem on that, uh, on that occasion and then the Friday in which he was crucified, I've thought about the time when his disciples argued yet again, yet again, about who was going to be considered the greatest of them all. And what did Jesus do? Did he respond to them and say to them with stern, harsh tone, You idiots! What's wrong with you? You knuckleheads! You're never going to get it, are you? He didn't use words like that. What did Jesus do? He arose from his place at the dinner table as the, great, as the person who was the highest honor there. He left that, put on his apron, picked up a bowl, began to wash the feet of his disciples. And in so doing, he was reminding them there is cleansing for their sin as well, for their failing to show a love and concern for each other. Jesus also, knowing that they would be scattered, knowing that they would go into tremendous difficulty and stumble after he died, Jesus, in that last few days with them, he also spent time speaking words of hope into their lives, assuring them there's going to be a Holy Spirit helping them he also took them into a place and some of them overheard him praying for them as he, as he prayed and interceded for them to the Father, saying, help them. These ones that I'm leaving behind, he says, I'm, I'm praying that you will help them and that they will be able to do what you call them to do. Another amazing act of gentleness when Jesus was in that final week was in the moments in which he was undergoing excruciating, agonizing pain nailed to a wooden cross, being mocked and ridiculed by the crowds and the soldiers. But to add further injury to his incredible suffering is that the two thieves on either side of him, who were also undergoing tremendous agony, nonetheless invested their little energy left to hurl abuse at him mocking him, cursing him, showing disdain for him and all he stood for. And then when one of them realized that Jesus was not responding as they had been responding and everyone else they've ever seen crucified, who usually is cursing up a storm and angry, they noticed that Jesus indeed was innocent. One of them began to show some contrition of heart and asked that Jesus would remember him in his kingdom and realized that Jesus was not the one who deserved to be dying on that cross, but that he did. And therefore, he said to Jesus, remember me in your kingdom. What did Jesus say? He gave him words of gentleness. He said, 
rather than getting even with him, rather than saying, you deserve to rot in hell, Jesus spoke words that said, to truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Those are words of gentleness. That's a response of gentleness. Giving him the words of hope through the gospel of those who come to him in faith and repentance. Well, there are many more illustrations I could provide. There was Paul responding to the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And when he says, listen, I'd like to, I'm going to come with a rod, but I'd rather not. I'd like to come with the meekness of Christ, with the gentleness of Christ. There are many other things we could talk about. I want to move really to the practical part here. And point number three, I want to think about some gospel incentives for the development of gentleness in the hearts of God's people. I would think that one place to start with, as we all need help in this area, I certainly do, is that we not lose sight of grace. Grace is the reminder that none of us is without fault. None of us deserves God's forgiveness. Everything that we have has been given to us. And that the grace we've received in Jesus Christ is a grace that always humbles us. Always helps us recognize that we are a person who is never to boast and never to see ourselves as better than anyone else. We are certainly to fight against the tendency to be proud and to see ourselves as better than those around us. And so therefore, the grace that we've received is a, brings a humble assessment. And that humble assessment helps us also go a long way to helping us treasure God's gentleness toward us. Never losing sight that we indeed have great incentive to be gentle toward others the more we think about how God has been gentle to us. We admit that we're not self-made people. There's nobody's ever a self-made person. All of us have received and continue to receive benefits from God's gentleness he shows to us in the gospel. Let's think about what that looks like then in the context of relationships. Turn to Galatians chapter 6, if you would, in your Bible. Galatians 6, page 1388. One of the ways in which we demonstrate a heart that is humble, humbled by the gospel, is responding to people around us who find themselves falling into sin. Notice how Paul counseled spiritual people which we'll get to this passage eventually here in Galatians, but he's talking to people who are filled with the Spirit, people who are being uh, serving and following Christ by the power of the Spirit of God. He says, this is how you are to approach people who are ensnared in sin. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if, any man, if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Rather than saying harsh words to a brother or sister who has fallen into sin, rather than saying words like, have you lost your mind? Or rather than saying, how could you be so stupid to do something like that? Or rather than shaming people or pushing them away or somehow acting like I can't even be involved with somebody like you who has done such a horrendous thing, Paul says, Rather than being that kind of response, those who bear the fruit of the Spirit would be those who would roll their sleeves up, who would get involved in offering counsel, who would offer prayer, who would offer words of encouragement in the gospel, and that the words of correction would be cushioned. Not given full force, but cushioned by the gospel. 
showing patience with them, showing the encouragement to know that we all struggle with sin, that we all find ourselves vulnerable to temptation. Not positioning ourselves as being greater than someone else, but lowering ourselves to say, I struggle with the same type of temptations, and only by the God's grace have I not uh, succumbed in, in your situation. But let's continue to pray and see how God will help you move out of this situation into walking in the light. Gentleness works to restore those who are caught in sin. This also is a helpful way to think of dealing not only with fellow believers, but also suppose there's people around us who do not show any kind of respect for people who follow Christianity, and there are more and more of those in today's world because we're depicted as being rather intolerant. We're depicted as people who are haters, people who are uh, arrogantly thinking that we know the only way. How do we deal with unbelievers and exhibit the gospel to them in how we conduct ourselves and having gentleness toward them? Well, Peter gives some help advice. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. He offers godly counsel, page 1441, of how to respond to people who are harassing you, people who are giving you a hard time because you're a follower of Christ, who are mocking your allegiance to Christ. What does Peter say? He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is, set him apart as Lord in your life. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Rather than relying upon, relying upon the Holy Spirit's help, Peter's saying believers will respond with a humble awareness of how undeserving we are to receive the grace of salvation in Christ and forgiveness. And therefore we view them with a sense of patience, understanding they're blind, understanding that the evil one is duping them and deceiving them. It's been a sad chapter that's recently ended. Perhaps you saw it in the news. A man by the name of Fred Phelps recently died, I would say, in the last uh, two or three, four weeks. He was, I would call, a world-class hater. Fred Phelps, he was the quote-unquote pastor of this Westboro Baptist so-called church. I wouldn't call it much of a church. But this Fred Phelps fellow was the primary, his primary focus in his life, unfortunately, was on denouncing sins. And he spent a great deal of time and effort denouncing the sins of other people. What he lacked was gospel gentleness. What he lacked was he never admitted his own struggle with sin in denouncing everybody else's sin. And he was a hater of sinners. And rather than being an ambassador of the true gospel, proclaiming the love of God, proclaiming the fact that those who are sinners who repent and place their faith in Christ, that promised to them is forgiveness. Promised to them in the gospel is cleansing. Promised to them is transformation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 provides tremendous hope for those of us who struggle in sin. But nonetheless, Fred Phelps, sadly enough, preached judgment and condemnation on people again and again and again. And so he said to many sinners, basically, there is no grace for you. You're going to get what's coming to you. And his heart was never softened by grace, and he never bore the kind of heart of gentleness 
described in this text of Scripture. I think what Peter is saying, that by recalling our own condition apart from the gospel, recalling where we were and what we would be apart from Christ, is that we avoid arguing with people. We avoid showing contempt for them. We speak with them in ways that our voices are not coming away harsh with them. We speak with a love for them that shows compassion for them, not filled with antagonism and disrespect. We share with them about Jesus and that he was one who came to Jerusalem as a gentle, willing king, laying down his life to rescue people from his sins. And so I say there are a number of other ways we can apply this text. I would just once more offer this suggestion. Is if you're a parent and you have children that you're involved in helping to raise and you're seeking to be an authority figure in their life, or God has called you to be an authority figure in your life, I would like to ask yourself, does the gospel of grace help to shape the way in which I speak to my children, the way I relate to my children? Do they sense that in our interactions with our, our kids, do, they, do, they, do our kids sense that they are exasperated by the ways we deal with them? Do we create an inability for them to ever feel like they're forgiven? or whatever it is that we struggle with. Oftentimes my wife would point out that my tone of voice was too intense with my kids. And she tried to encourage me to lay, it, lay off a little bit here so you can engage in what you're trying to do and they won't feel like you've lost a sense of gentleness. My friends, we all struggle. I struggle with gentleness. We all need it. Let's all continue to pray that God by his spirit will point us to Christ and his gentleness and that we would see that beginning to shape our hearts as fruit produced by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to again just say how grateful I am that our Lord Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, did not come bearing the sword. He did not come with the legions of angels intent on enforcing justice. I thank you, Father, that we have a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, who is gentle and humble, who himself took on our sin, who himself speaks word of hope, who promises that he will not utilize his authority and his supremacy over us in a way to destroy us, but in order to enable us to enjoy true fullness of life, healing, restoration, and transformation through the gospel. So, Father, I pray that the the wonders of the gentleness of Christ would again bring in all of us a heightened sense of humility, of a deepened sense of wonder and, and uh, amazement at your grace shown to us in the gospel. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has never yielded their life to Christ, who has never surrendered themselves, acknowledging their sin and transferring their trust from themselves and their own attempts to improve themselves to Christ and what he did for them on the cross and in helping to placate their sins before a holy God. I pray that even this day, Lord, they would come to you, the gentle Savior who rescues sinners and redeems those who are weak and have nothing to commend themselves to you. Father, for those of us who know that grace, I pray that you would work that grace into our hearts and lives 
I pray that for some of us, Lord, it might mean confessing sin, humbling ourselves, seeking to remedy any areas where we've not been gentle. And we pray, Lord, that you might work in our hearts to be agents of gentleness under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen.